0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. We're in the series of messages entitled, The Power of a Gathered People, in which uh, we've been asking a question, well, what? what's, the, what's important when we have this age of, of all this virtual technology, What's important about physically being together? What's the importance of a, a gathered church? What do we get, uh, or what, why is God kind of insistent that we gather together physically? Uh, it, you know, why is it important to God? What, what, what's available to us being together that's not available in any other way? And I think it's a good question to ask. And look, as, as you look at the language of scripture, it reveals how much that question of gathering begs for an answer, especially in our culture, where right now individualism, independence I mean, that's the, that's the mantra of the day. And I believe that part of the strategy of darkness uh, throughout this whole uh, pandemic has, not, has been to isolate us, uh, to make us independent of one another, angry with one another. Uh, crazy with one another in such a way that we become solitary. We move from individualism to solitariness, and that's dangerous. I've quoted this before, but it's so profound. Um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, I've been uh, to her convent. I've been in the monkey market in India where she began her ministry. But here's what she said, and I find this just fascinating. She said, the problem of poverty in India is not nearly as dire as the problem of loneliness in the West. Wow, what an analysis of a culture, huh? Um, So most of us know that there are a a number of metaphors in the scriptures, charismatics. We like to pump them up and use them all the time. The Bible speaks of the church as the body of Christ, having uh, many members with different functions uh, and so, uh, you know, if, if that's the metaphor that Paul's using all over the place, how can you have a body that's disjoint, right? I mean, you don't go to work saying, oh, I forgot my fingers this morning, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's like the very definition organically of who we are means that we fit. When we fit with one another, we have a place with one another. And something happens in the Holy Spirit when we come together that gives us meaning And life, okay? And the other, there's some others too. The bride of Christ. Scripture speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. You know, and you have to think, isn't that interesting? I always found it interesting that the scripture doesn't speak of the church as the wife of Christ. There's something about being a bride. There's the newness, ever newness, that ever flush of romance that uh, uh, you guys back there are experiencing right now. You realize when you have three kids and two of them have chicken pox it ain't that way you know (laughs) but God is faithful yeah and your love is faithful anyway so there's the bride of Christ lovers want to be together huh so there's that there's that uh, metaphor then there's the household of God all right Uh, what's the value uh, that we place in our families being physically gathered if you neglect the gatheredness of uh, uh, of the family, guess what? The family doesn't survive. At least as family, all right. So, this morning I'm going to talk about a key facet of Christian community that goes all the way back to the beginning in the church in Jerusalem in the first century. And this this uh, this message, I, I pretty much own this, so I have a lot of my own stories. But the message itself is Ian's idea, Pastor Ian's idea, and he's preaching at Makanji. and, and uh, I've never really spoken about this before. Because so we're gonna talk about gathering at the table, and by table, I don't only mean Eucharist, I mean gathering at the table, you know? Roast beef, pork and beans, you know, whatever. You know, the, the, the idea in the scripture where there's a big place for the phenomenon of eating Are you there? And we're going to talk about that. I've never preached on it before, and Ian pushed this idea. And when I began to dig into it, I thought, oh, my, there's so much in the Scriptures about this. So we're going to look at how community, the community of the church is shaped through this specific practice of chowing down together. The title of this message is Gathering at the Table. Now, I want to turn to the very beginning of the church, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And this is a scripture a a lot of us are familiar with, but I'm going to unpack it in a little bit of a different way this morning. Uh, And so we're going to read it together, and I'll do a running commentary. But the context is this. The Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. The church is birthed. Okay, Peter preaches boldly in the streets of Jerusalem, and 3,000 people come to faith. And then Luke tells us what happens next, beginning in verse 42. He says, and they devoted themselves, and then he goes on to say there are four practices that they devoted themselves to. In other words, there was content to their faith commitment, okay. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. All right, this has to do with the centrality of God's word, okay. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship, the words koinonia, and so that this, what, what, what Luke is telling us is when they came to Jesus, it was not individualistically, it was not independent, it wasn't a solitary experience, that God does not apprehend a person, he always apprehends a people. You're there, always. Genesis through Revelation, all right? And verse 3, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, that's interesting. Because some people argue it's a reference to the Eucharist, what we just did. And others say, no, no, it's the breaking bread at table. It's being in one another's homes. I would say, look, in the early church, wherever I look, the context of Eucharist is a meal. Jesus instituted Eucharist in a meal. They had Passover, all right, and, and uh, in one Corinthians eleven, where Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and he's he's kind of correcting him, and he says, "Look, when you gather, you know," and then he describes them gathering in a meal, and some of them are getting tipsy, and he says, "That's not the point, you know." And then he talks about the sanctity of Eucharist, what happens, how you get healed, how your healing is dependent upon the attitude with which you come to the table, but it's in the context of a meal. And they devoted themselves to that. Okay. The prayers, they devoted themselves to prayers and it's prayers, by the way, plural. In other words, there's a rhythm of devotion in Jewish life where you're praying throughout the day at various times, three times a day, literally. And, and so there's this rhythm of eating and the word and being with one another. And there's this rhythm of, of prayer. Verse 43, this is what happens when you do that. See, we always look back to the falling of the Holy Spirit and everybody dumping out into the streets of Jerusalem and speaking in tongues. But look at what Luke says happens in verse 43. Awe came upon every soul. Isn't that interesting? And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Boy, you know, I'm going to go on so many rabbit trails here if I'm not... Look, everywhere I go, these days, because of the, the discombobulation of pandemic and elections and politics and all that stuff, people say, We need a revival. We need a revival. And I think, What are you imaging when you say that word revival? Because if you're imaging what happened in Toronto, you know, that ain't going to do the trick. Not these days. Are you there? If you're imaging something, I, I could go through the litany, but it's interesting what revived the church here. It's pretty mundane in our kinds of thinking as charismatics. Praying, being together, eating together, community, worshiping together. Isn't that interesting? Because the world can see something viable when we do that. Are you there? All right, so we're going to explore this a little bit. 44, and all who believed were together. Some, some translations say in one accord. See, the divisions in the Jewish community, and there were tons. There are more divisions in first century Judaism than we ever thought about in 21st century America. But you know what? They disappeared. They disappeared. They had all things in common. Look at this. And they were selling their position, possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to everybody as they had need. Verse 46 And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So there's community of big gatherings and little gatherings and being together, praising God, having favor with all people. Now watch this. And then the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So I, these days I'm not much praying for revival. If by revival we mean some massive kind of move of God that's, uh, that's, that's just all-encompassing and, you know, kind of like the Great Awakening, that kind of... I would just like to see us gather, enjoy God, enjoy one another, and every week, boom, 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 more people come into the knowledge of faith in the living God. That would be cool. I am down with that. Are you there? Amen? Amen. Uh, So, now, okay... What I love about this passage is how much they're eating together, <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> Three times it's mentioned, and it's, it's described as a core practice that believers committed themselves to, al- along with rhythms of prayer and all the rest of it. Okay. Now, this idea, I could tell I was kind of connecting with you when I talked about that. Being together, praying together, eating together, Uh, worshiping together, that togetherness, I could tell I was appealing to you. And and I think it's because it seems, it has this instinct about it, that that was what church was meant to be. The household of God. The family of God. All right? What's more, this picture appeals to both sides of of your political spectrum out here. If you're a left-winger, you can love the scripture because everyone's selling their stuff and redistributing wealth. Huh? And if you're a right winger, you can love it because it's totally voluntary. There's no taxes or government mandates, right? The difference is it's not coerced. It's the product of love. Uh, Yeah, love can do that. Love can take care of those problems, yeah? And so that's why, by the way, that Laura decided to do this graphic. She did a great job uh, for for this series. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell a couple stories. And, you know, everybody grab the side of their seats and hold on tight. All right. I hope I can do this because there's something working in me, and I, and I hope I can communicate to you what I want to communicate to you. About 20 or so years ago, I was preaching in southern France, and I did a whole series of meetings in a city called Carcassonne. You can look it up online. It's so gorgeous. It's right, on, right near the Spanish border, and it's right near the Mediterranean. It's a walled city. It's a medieval city. And it's just like storybook kind of thing. And I did this series of beatings. And and, uh, and, and the after the Sunday night meeting, a guy comes up to me and he's, he's, he was probably about 60 at the time. And he's a little rough around the edges and so forth. And he says to me, he says, I want, I, I want to know if you'll come to my house on on Wednesday and have, have uh, lunch. He didn't say the word lunch. He used the the repas in French means the main meal in the Mediterranean. Is at, at, it's it's kind of like uh, what used to be the siesta. And, and uh, if you come there. And so I got permission from the local pastor. Oh, yeah, you want to go there? He says, that's Jean-Paul Marie. And he says, Jean-Paul has one of the largest vineyards in this region. I said, oh, cool. So he comes and picks me up where I'm staying. And we go to this vineyard. Now. When I say vineyard, we're talking about square miles of grapes, right? We're talking about square miles. And there's a big villa, old villa, in the center of the property. And there's all kinds of houses around the villa. And they're all really old. And there's just vines and grapes everywhere. There's tractors and vats and all the stuff of a big vineyard. And so I come in. I get there around 10, 30, quarter of 11, and all of a sudden the workers are all coming in from the fields. Most of them are his family, or family grandchildren, grandchildren and they're all coming in. And, and they come into the villa, and there's a table that is about the size of this, uh, of this area up here. And the women have been cooking in the morning, and they're throwing all this feast. Now, it was, it was embellished because I was a guest. But they do this every day from 11 to 2. Okay, that's part of the culture there. And, and it was embellished because I was there, that, you know, they, 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 they did some nicer stuff than they would normally do, but it was still part of their daily practice. And so all the food's laying out there. Jean-Paul Marie walks in with a shotgun, sits at the head of the table, and puts the shotgun down next to him. And I thought, have I offended him, you know? <laughs> So I said, well, what's the shotgun for? And he says, well, the so- the, at that time, there was a socialist president in France. He says, the socialists want to nationalize my vineyard, and it ain't going to happen, you know? He didn't, he was speaking French, and I learned a few French expletives that day. Anyway, so, so, so what they would do is they'd vandalize, and a couple of the guys at the table had shotguns in case The socialists came to vandalize the tables. So, so, or the the, the vineyard. Anyway, so I thought, isn't this interesting? So that provoked a question. Watch this. That provoked a question. I said, Jean-Paul, this is your family's vineyard? And he said, yeah. I said, how long has this vineyard been in your family? He said, about a thousand years. Holy moly. Holy moly. And I'm just watching... I'm watching the interaction across the table as everyone's smiling and, you know, they're, they're pouring the wine and, and they're, and, and it, you know, they're not getting smashed or anything like that. Because they got to go back out and work till eight o'clock that night. Um, but it's part of that culture, you know. But the thing that struck me was the power with which that communicated the value of family. It wasn't just an emotion it wasn't just a physical meal. It was an emotional meal. It was a social meal. It was it was a, a traditional meal in the sense that the, 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 the tradition of the family was being preserved and activated, you know? And and something powerful went off in my spirit. They had me pray. We prayed a couple times over the course of the meal, and they sat and talked and sat and talked for hours, you know. And so something went off in me. So when I came back home, um, uh, I said to Tricia, "I said I learned something. I said Christmas is going to be different this year." And Now my my mom had passed away, and my dad, who was virulently virulently anti-Christian, you know, was coming to Christmas dinner because he was alone now, first time in his life, and with with my uh, with my brothers and everybody. And we set up a table in our house in Union Boulevard, which was like a brownstone, and that table extended. It took every inch of space in the house. We invited everybody in the family we could invite. And we gave them notice, this is going to be a four- or five-hour meal. And we said, so if you don't want to come for that time, please don't come. (laughs) And because we felt like God wanted to do something. And Tricia, God love her, and she orchestrated a seven- course french meal patterned after what i'd seen at the vineyard and and like i mean she made a pavlova we had lamb we had pate foie gras sorry vegans we had um you know it was like it was, she did this tremendous job and then we spaced the meal out so we ate a little bit and then we talked and we ate a little bit and then we talked and we ate a little bit went on for four or five hours my father, we, and we prayed in the midst of it, okay? And my father didn't have a choice because he wanted to be with his family, so he had to pray. So the deal was that opened the door. I feel like Tricia led my dad to the Lord later that year, and, and uh, that meal broke something in him. It broke something spiritually, okay? Now, uh, this, this past week, Thank you, by the way, for honoring us for our 50th wedding anniversary. We did the same thing with our family down in Tennessee. Well, family here and in Tennessee, we all got together from all over this. Everybody was there. But it was just family. And, and, um, and we asked the kids to invite some of their friends if they wanted to invite friends. But not the adults so much, okay? Because we wanted to influence kids. And uh, uh, the same kind of anointing emerged you know, because my kids were saying, what do you want to do? You want to go on a cruise? You want to do this that?" I don't want to do anything. I want to do this. I don't want to do anything. I just want to do this. And there wasn't fanfare and there was no band or anything like that, but we arranged all the tables and we arranged all the chairs that everybody would be conversing with one another and bonding with one another and re-imagining family together with one another. Now, See, this is, this is what I want to say. I realized in these experiences the power of a communal table to generate, to stabilize, and to create family. Yeah? And, and it wasn't as if... Now watch this. Here's where we're going with it. It wasn't as if the church in Jerusalem, in breaking bread together from house to house, was creating the means of family and community. It wasn't like they had this big new idea... All they were doing was adopting the best part of Mediterranean culture and using it to build the church. Do you follow what I'm saying? This isn't a new deal. We all have families, or if we don't have families, we have friends, or if you don't have families and friends, you got this church, are you there? And we're called to be together, but we're called to eat together. When Pastor Ian said, this is what we're going to do this Sunday, I said, you mean we're preach a sermon on eating? He said, yep. And, and when I started to dig into it, I thought, man, there's really something here. Okay. So, so in all of our focus on the gathered church for the last few weeks, and all of our focus on the gathered church, we've talked about worship, prayer, deliverance, like all the stuff that can happen when we can lay hands on each other. Uh, Uh, But we we can't lose sight of the fact that what communicates the truth uh, of the gospel to a watching world is not primarily the persuasiveness of our sermons or the quality of our music or the friendliness of our greeters and ushers. Those things are important, but it's the quality of our community. And is it authentic? Because that makes people want to come. Yeah? It's it's that kind of thing. So so anyway, people may be like intellectually intrigued by a message or emotionally drawn to the music or feel welcome by a friendly face. That's all good. But to embrace Jesus, they need to see, they need to see that living a Christian life in community is really a viable option. You there. And to be honest with you, not only this church, but other churches, especially in America, that I'm, that I'm around, you know, it looks staged, it looks celebrity-driven, it looks um, uh, inauthentic. Yeah, inauthentic. So, um, so th- what Luke says is, look, people in Jerusalem saw this and they enjoyed the favor of everybody and the church multiplied itself. All right. So Christian community makes good news credible. And we see in this passage, the disciples committing themselves to this kind of communal passage. All right, if I had written this, well, I have written most of it, but adopting Ian's ideas, uh, when I was going through this, uh, I don't have a slide because Ian made the slides, but if I had, my next slide would be this. God is a foodie. Chad Lisco, wherever you are, take note, you know. God is a foodie. That would be my next slide. I remember having a conversation with friends years ago, and someone asked, well, do you think there'll be food in heaven? And, and I said, well, you know, the book of Revelation does talk about a wedding feast, and feast means eating food. Yeah? All right. And, and another friend scoffed then and said, you mean to tell me you'll be hanging out eating Patsy's hot dogs in heaven? You know, I said, how could it be heaven otherwise? (laughs) But think for a moment, okay? In Luke's gospel alone, watch this. We find Jesus eating with people 10 times, two of which are after his resurrection. As a matter of fact, every time someone is resurrected in the scriptures, they're given something to eat. I'm serious. I'm serious. In Mark 5, 41, when Jesus raises a little girl from the dead, you know, Talitha kumi, come forward, you know, he immediately instructs her family to give her something to eat. Huh? And then after Lazarus is raised from the dead, in John 12, 2, you know, the next frame, Lazarus is reclining at the table, eating with Jesus. When Jesus appears to Thomas and the disciples, He says to them, look, it's me. Do you see? I've got the wounds. All that stuff's going on here. And he says, by the way, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) Have you noticed that? And and literally, the last thing that Jesus does in the last page of of John's gospel is he cooks breakfast for the disciples. I would have liked to have seen Jesus cook. I mean, because when people cook, they get into it, all right? I mean, even if I cook hot dogs, I'm into it, right? And, and uh, I would have liked to have seen Jesus cook, you know. Um, and, and then he fed them, right? And so uh, if I were writing the next slide, I'd just say this, resurrected people are hungry people. Because <laughs> they got some ascending to do, yeah? Okay, so eating together forms the structure of like a community. A table, watch this, a table is the most fundamentally human place on earth. We're only creatures on the planet. We're the only creatures that eat at a table. Now, when I say table, I'm not talking about necessarily a physical table. I mean, I was in Morocco uh, in the Berber Riff, and I'm eating, going to what, what's, quote, restaurant, end quote, which is a tent with one 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 kind of food you can buy. It was couscous and everybody sat around a big blanket and ate with their fingers from the ball, and it was communal, and it went on for like an hour. I didn't speak, uh, well, it was Berber, it wasn't Arabic. I didn't speak anything, Um, but we were sign languaging, and a community emerged right at the blanket. Are you there? We're we're the only species that does that. Isn't that interesting? And so, so, uh, so, uh, here's the deal. As I'm coming into this today, I'm thinking, well, what's happened to all that? See, at Jean-Paul Marie's house in, but last week down in Nashville, and you can't do this all the time, but what was stark is that nobody had to go to a soccer game. You didn't have to get the kids to Brownies or Boy Scouts or Little League. That There wasn't this going on. There wasn't that going on. There was no microwave TV stuff, TV dinners. There was... Uh, You didn't throw something down to get back in the car and get out. And two kids were there. One person was there. One wasn't. Are you there? And so much of our lives and even in our family uh, is conditioned by the tyranny of a culture that wants to separate us. Now, what am I saying? Because I can see some smoke coming out of all your ears. Am I saying that every day we have to have from 11 to 2 a family dinner and all that? No, I'm not. But I do think we need to rethink the practice of common meals. Are you there? In our families, in the church, and I think it's it's biblically and spiritually, emotionally important. I I really do. Um, Eugene Peterson, I don't know how many of you know, he's He's just passed away recently. He's written more on pastoral, pastoral ministry than anybody on the planet. He says, the preparation, serving, and the eating of meals is perhaps the most complex cultural process that we human beings find ourselves in. It's a microcosm of the intricate realities that are combined to form the culture that give the culture meaning in the daily lives of everybody, men, women, children, and even in Jesus, right? Common table is the primary way by which we take care of three things, physical needs, social need, cultural need. So meals don't only meet physical needs, but social needs as well. Um, Watch this one. This is cool. We did the connecting music this morning. I I was thinking of connecting music. It was an old uh, thing from the... Now, probably from the 90s, it was it was a hymn called "God and Man." God and man at table are Set down. Do you remember that? Yeah, but I listened to it before we came in. It sounded too much like Gilligan's Island, so I decided not to use it. Anyway, uh, so we so we used Gregory Porter's "Take Me to the Alley," where in the song that was playing, it sounded a little like Sinatra, or the, maybe like the Ramada Inn after Jesus comes. Anyway. It, if you listen to the connecting music. Anyway, it's all about, he goes into this big fancy restaurant and he says, take me to the alley. Let's go out and eat with the destitute and the, the starving and the, the people who are hurting and all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a nice song. It's, it's kind of Sinatra-esque anyway. So, uh, but remember, watch this. Remember that one of the main ways Jesus got into trouble is because of those with whom he chose to eat. (laughs) Are you there? I mean, religious people couldn't take it. Yeah? He ate with his critics. He ate with the poor. He ate with political outcasts. He ate with his enemies. Huh? Huh? He said to Nicodemus, whom everyone hated, right, in Jericho, he said, Nicodemus, get down from the tree. I'm going to have dinner at your house. Right? Which means and I'm telling you, they, didn't, they just didn't have falafels that day. It was a big deal. That probably was hours long. right? Remember, one of the main ways he got into trouble was those with whom he chose to eat. And as far, watch this, as far as is recorded in the gospel, watch this. Jesus spent 22% of his ministry eating with people. Huh? Ministering in their homes. And this is equal to the amount of time that he spent in the temple and the synagogue. I mean, I never noticed that, you know? In John's gospel, the first place he performs a miracle is at a wedding feast where he's eating. Yeah? And the last thing he does after his resurrection is, as I said, cooks and eats, yeah? So I'm convinced that he ate intentionally with the people that he ate with because he understood that it was important to the restoration of their souls and their humanity. He gave them dignity, yeah? Nothing quite confers dignity to somebody who's lower or more lowly than to simply eat with them. To, to, to buy him a meal. Nothing quite humbles the proud as to sit sit down with them at, at the bottom of the table. And and the table was there was where many of the most significant conversations took place in the ministry of Jesus. It was where he discipled people. It was also a medium for evangelism, Nicodemus being one of the one of the people. See, humanity fell through F- fell. Watch. Humanity itself, Adam and Eve, fell through the taking of a meal. Did you ever notice that? By the way, it wasn't an apple. <laughs> but it was a meal. Yeah, and, and Israel was redeemed and created on the Passover through the taking of a meal. It's, it's fascinating. There's, there's always a table in the Bible. you know, And he pro- Jesus promises that when he returns... We'll have a celebratory meal with him. And people, animal rights, people say, we're going to kill animals? Well, I don't know how it's going to work, but I think it'll be wonderful, you know. Um, yeah, I, I think we'll eat in the new heaven and the new earth. So, all right. It's 25 after. Where are all? Where is all this going? Okay. I, I, this is all I want. This is a takeaway from this message because it's a very different message, right? And And so as we look to gathering together once again and reestablish By the way, Becky Brown, when your dad did his living uh, before he died, he did his living thing up in the coal regions and had all of his friends there, for- fed him and stuff. That was a moment of genius. Yeah, it really was. Anyway, so, so um, here's the deal. Uh, I want us to do this as Christians, Let's recommit ourselves to remembering that every time we come to the table, God is at that table because it, you know, when you're throwing, when you're throwing down, uh, you know, uh, when you're throwing down a piece of pizza, the, the idea that God is there escapes us unless you, you know, uh, you bless it, you know, with some feeling or something like that. Remember at every meal that God is at the table, and our kids really know that at every meal, God is at the table. At the Last Supper, one of the interesting little comments that there is, is uh, when, when, they, uh, when Jesus gave thanks, at the, Jesus gave thanks, he thanked the Father for the, for the meal, and then it says, and he, and he sang a hymn. I wonder what Jesus' voice sounded like. Like, you know, was it like, I don't know, was it, was it like a... a you know, a rabbi canting? Or, you know, was it like Louis Armstrong? I, you know, because wh- <laughs> both are beautiful in their own way, yeah? And so, I mean, this is fascinating human things that are going on, you know? Okay, so um, so like, I love, because we, we, when we, all our grandkids were together, we had 11, 11 grandkids are all together. I met my new granddaughter when we were down in Tennessee, and when, but when I get together with all the kids, I love asking them to say grace, one of them to say grace, because they hate it. <laughs> so some of them just say, no. <laughs> but I can always go to Grayson. He's not here now. Grayson will do it. You know. a matter of fact, two of, two of my grandchildren said, um, they wanted to talk to me about baptism, the uh, 15-year-old and the 16-year-old. And I said, okay. And Grayson said, you mean you're, he's 13. He said, you mean you're not baptized? And they said, no. He said, ooh, I can judge you. (laughs) I said, boy, do you belong in church? You know? (laughs) So I took them all out for a meal. And we talked for a couple hours. I I took five of them out to a meal. And they they went because they knew I was going to buy them a meal. But, but, uh. But I said, okay, ask me anything you want about God. And we had like about a two hour Sunday school deal. And you know, and I filled them all up with sugar and gave them back to their parents. Anyway, so <laughs> so Okay, so remember as Christians that God is at every table. Secondly, reconsider your culinary habits within your own families. I know you can't look. I know the kids gotta get to soccer. You you're coaching little, whatever's going on. But do you ever have meals together or have they disappeared because of the tyranny of your lives? And when you have those meals, have them invite some friends and then pray for the meal. Talk about Jesus in the meal. How about this? What about reshaping your extended families through holiday meals? Think differently about maybe Labor Day or Christmas or Thanksgiving. Think differently, a little more calculatedly about how we position people and who we invite, huh? Who we invite to come to our table. Alpha is all about meals. I really think Alpha's success was consequent to the quality of the meal, yeah? Right? Uh, How about this? What about intentionally eating in each other's homes? Yeah? Uh, what about intentionally s- seeing our meals as evangelistic, of See, uh, seeing our meals as holy, maybe spiritual moments to shape community, phys- physically, socially, culturally. Uh, for those of you who are single, you, if you're single in this church, you, you should never be forced to eat alone all the time. Yeah? And th- so that puts the, the onus on us to be sensitive to that. Yeah? Uh, we have a Monday evening group. You guys get together Monday evening. You're still doing that, right? And you have a meal. And you put all the stuff in the kitchen downstairs, and I can come in and steal some of your food, (laughs) which I do. (laughs) Because usually there's an elders meeting around then, you know? Um, So as you take this message away today, I I I want you to reflect, everybody here, reflect on the the, the sanctity of our tables. I, I know it's, I mean, we're look, like, we're not healing the sick and raising the dead, I get that. But who knows that consequent to doing that, we won't be able to heal the sick and raise the dead. And here's the last thing, and then we'll close. Don't hesitate to take Eucharist at your family meals sometimes. If you orchestrate a family meal, don't hesitate you know, as you guys who are the head of your household or moms who are the head of your household, you know, lay out some bread, put some wine or grape juice on the table. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was, was at the, the. Uh, it's amazing that the first miracle occurred in the scriptures, in the ministry of Jesus at a meal, at a wedding feast. And then Jesus turned all the wine into uh, grape juice. Anyway, so... <laughs> Don't hesitate to take Eucharist at your family meals. And then when you do, here's something I like to do. Proclaim the new Passover over your kids. Yeah. Say, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for this new Passover in your blood. And I bless every one of you kids in Jesus' name. Do it as a father. Do it as a grandfather. Do it as a mother. Do it as a grandmother. Those kinds of things. Okay? Okay. Uh, so the last slide is this. What is the invitation you are withholding? And Ian wrote that. I would just say this, because I think, what is the invitation I'm withholding? Who am I not inviting? Am I seeking the Holy Ghost? Who am I not inviting that I should be inviting? Because this, I mean, seems to be a much bigger deal in Scripture. By the way, Rachel, I'll be over for dinner this afternoon. Okay. <laughs> Climb down from the tree, will you? <laughs> I'm teasing. Anyway, I have a christening to go to. Anyway, uh, um, this is stupidly simple, this message, but I think it's God. Yeah? All right. Hallelujah. It's good to be together. Can everybody stand? If, um, if you don't know w- what it means to want to be with God's people and You don't know what this is all about. Maybe you're online watching and and you're saying, I I hear you, but I really don't know where to go with this. Maybe the first thing you need to do is to go um, and say, in order to be at the table, which God is at, I need to know the God who's at the table. And so um, if that's you, if you've never really said, I want a relationship with you, Jesus, this could be a really important uh, day for you. And I want to invite you to come to this table and uh, uh, after service we'll, we'll have a little bit of a meal together after we pray this prayer. So I'm going to ask you all to join with me in this communal prayer. But if you've never prayed this prayer before, or maybe you prayed it asking for a relationship with Jesus and it never quite took, today's the day. We Today's the day we can do that. So I'm going to ask you to Uh, Pray together a, a few words that will change your life. And you can repeat after me. We'll do it the Catholic way here. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Jesus, forgive me. I turn from anything that I know is wrong. And I ask you for the grace to do that. I thank you that you died for me so I would be forgiven and set free. And I receive that gift, the gift of forgiveness and the gift of your presence in my life. Be with me forever. Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast.